All right. Thank you very much for being willing to chat with one another. Appreciate it. And as you guys are making your way back to your seats, um, Brad Bushnell, our worship MC this morning, we call that person the worship MC, kind of maybe a DJ or something. We need to have a turntable up here. Anyway, but uh, Brad already mentioned that, you know, when New Year's rolls around, um, people have all sorts of things going through their heads, right? Some people have really high goals for this next year, you know, they think, finally, I'm going to get my diet under control, Right? Or some people think, okay, I'm going to finally start exercising, and they make some decisions to start exercising. Or some people say, I'm going to read the Bible every day, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. And uh, inevitably, yeah, you know, a couple weeks, three weeks in, all of a sudden, for the vast majority of the people, the wheels have fallen off, right? Not for me, uh, personally, but I know it happens for other people. Anyway, yeah, that's never happened to me. Anyway, so you've got these new ideas, um, there's this new year, there's these new hopes, these new goals. And the reality is at some point in time, you're going to have to face um, the, uh, the stark reality that uh, you're still kind of the same person you were last year, right? And your past performance in the previous years is most likely going to predict this year's performance as well. And so what I'm going to do today is, uh, you know, typically, you know, when you give a New Year's sermon, you sort of say, hey, we're going to do this this year. And my only call for you this year um, as a church, Seven Hills Fellowship, is people who are seeking uh, to either investigate Jesus or to walk with Jesus is simply going to be to call you to living a very simple life of faith, of believing that God's in control, believing that God loves you, right? And, uh, and really, I'll let the other things flow out of those two things. Now, let me take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon for today. Father, thank you for these people. I thank you that um, from the very beginning of time, you not only knew that they were going to be in this room this morning, but you actually invited them and drew them to this place this morning. And so, Father, I ask that, um, that you would meet us here um, at your invitation, that you would be waiting for us. Father, I pray that that would be true not only for those of us who have been walking with you for a long time. Father, I pray that you would meet people here today um, who have never walked with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would surprise um, some folks in the room this morning that you would knock on the door of their hearts, and that you would um, ask that they would invite you in. Father, we pray all these things today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So some of you guys who have floated around uh, Windshape or Barry before, you've heard of the Windshape Sailing Adventure. Anybody ever heard about this before, the Windshape Sailing Adventure? So basically what happens is, this is a picture, I think, of the actual um, uh, catamaran that uh, the wind-shaped sailing adventure uses, but I think it's a 52-foot catamaran. And so what happens is four couples, and then Ross and Rebecca Parrish, I'm not sure if they're here today, but Ross is the captain, uh, but they'll go down to the British Virgin Islands and spend a week on this catamaran sailing around the British Virgin Islands. Now, some of you have heard that this is an awesome trip, that it's great. Can You can just sort of imagine that it's wonderful. The truth is, it's, man, it's just not all it's cracked up to be. It's terrible. Like, 84 degrees, crystal clear water, all this lobster and shrimp. I mean, it's just terrible. So anyway, if you have at any point in time wanted to go on that, just you know, go ahead and let me just sort of lower your expectations. Just kidding. It's awesome. Anyway, so anyway, so about back in April, Kristen and I had the chance to go on one of these wind-shaped sailing adventures. They're really, the focus is on developing marriages, and I think Chick-fil-A, you know, underwrites some massive amount of what it might cost to do that. 
And, uh, but what happens is, is you fly down to the British Virgin Islands, and then you meet Ross, Captain Ross, again, who's, I don't know if he's here this morning, but he is part of Seven Hills Fellowship. You meet Ross at the 52-foot catamaran, and he begins to sail you out through these crystal clear, you know, bright blue British Virgin Islands waters. And as he's sailing out of the, you know, the little, the, uh, the little bay there, he starts giving you some instructions. And the first instruction is this. He says, look, you know, I'm only 30 years old or whatever he is, 28 years old. I've had my captain's license now for the last five or six years. And so I get all sorts of people on the boat, and he said, you just need to know, step number one, you need to know that I'm in control, right? And, and I just need you to trust me. And the reason I need you to trust me is because if we're in high seas or if something dangerous happens, when I say to do something, I need you just to trust me and obey, right? And he teaches you to do some certain things, raise this sail, lower that sail, turn the boat this way, turn the boat that way, just trust me. And then what he basically says is, over the course of the next week, I've got a plan. And the plan is to take you from this island to that island, to this underwater cave, to this restaurant, to this mountain, to this cliff, you know, around the British Virgin Islands. And you just need to trust that I'm in control and I've got a plan and I'm taking us to all of these places, right? And so here you are in the British Virgin Islands on the 52-foot catamaran with, you know, with your wife. And you're faced with this sort of realization that you're completely at the whim of Captain Ross, right? Like, I just have to trust him, that he's in control. And not only that, but when he takes me to do all these crazy things that we're going to do, I need to trust that he's got my best interest in mind, that he loves me. Does that make sense? And so the reality of these things are flowing through my brain, through my head, as we embark on this adventure. And so sure enough, over the course of the next week, we went through all these different things. He would take you through these underwater caves, right? So just imagine for a second snorkeling and going into an underwater cave. Like, that's a little scary, right? It's a little risky. And so you got to trust Ross that he is in control, that he knows what he's doing, and that he has your best interest in mind. And not only that, but there are some, you know, underwater sort of... Um, uh, sort of little caverns you have to swim through. There's a place called the Baths where there's about a 40-foot giant boulder, and it uh, looks out into this pool that's surrounded by these other boulders, and he takes you under the top of this 40-foot boulder, whoever wants to go. And then you've got to jump 40 feet into a relatively deep but relatively small pool of water. And so you're standing there on the edge of this giant rock looking down into this crystal clear water, crystal clear enough that you can see the rocks that are uh, sort of at the, you know, on the, the, the bottom of this little area. And he goes, all right, who's going to jump first? And you got to jump into the water. Again, trusting the whole time that uh, Ross has got this thing under control and that he loves us and it's not just some way for him to try to take me out. You know what I mean? And so we spent a week down in the British Virgin Islands with Ross. And again, it was just fantastic to submit ourselves to him and to say, okay, man, you're in control. We trust that you've got our best interests in mind, that you love us. And by the time the week was over, it was just a great week, one of the best weeks of our lives. Now, the reason I tell all these little stories is to say this, is um, biblical faith is not unlike that experience of going on that sailing adventure with Captain Ross, right? Uh, Going on that sailing adventure requires that you have faith in Ross, our captain, right? That you have faith that he's got it under control, and you have faith that he's got your best interest in mind. In other words, that he loves us. That's exactly what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is ultimately believing that God is in control, and biblical faith is believing that God loves us. It's a lot more than that, but in some respects, at its simplest form, that's what biblical faith is, that God is in control and that he loves us. Matthew 14 is a great place to sort of unpack these two principles. Some of you will be familiar with the story of Matthew chapter 14. It's the story of Peter uh, being invited to walk out on the water 
with Jesus during the middle of a storm. Let's start in verse 22 of Matthew 14. It says this, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd, right? So basically Jesus has been doing all these miracles. And so after doing all these miracles, casting out demons, healing people, raising a little girl from the dead, people, you know, needless to say, want to follow. They want to be close to Jesus. The crowds are around him. Jesus dismisses the disciples, says, hey, you guys go out onto the water, and then he dismisses the people. And again, we're in the middle of Matthew chapter 14. What's interesting is at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 14, we read that John the Baptist has been beheaded, right? And so you can just imagine the disciples, they all knew John the Baptist, right? They were all personally acquainted with him. Some of them had actually been his disciples before choosing to follow Jesus. And so you can imagine they're a little bit nervous, right? John the Baptist has just been beheaded. And so they're wondering, have we made the right decision to follow Jesus or are we going to be next, right? And so upon hearing that John the Baptist has been killed, again, you can just imagine their fears, their insecurities, their doubts, maybe they're even a little distraught. It would have been understandable for them to completely question whether or not the path that they had chosen was the right one or the wrong one. And probably above all else, they probably thought things are kind of out of control, right? Things are out of control. Verse 23 After he, that is Jesus, had dismissed them, the crowd, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, right? Listen to this next sentence. Any of you who think there's no humor in the Bible, listen to this. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Like, I actually kind of think that's funny, right? So they see Jesus walking on the water, and their first thought is, it's a ghost, and they start yelling. So these grown men in a boat, very afraid, right? But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, or in the Greek, ego ami, ami. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. All right, so this, the theme of this morning, and, and really what I'm saying that I hope will be the theme for 2016 for you, is the theme of faith, biblical faith. So what do we see in this passage about faith? Several things. We're going to talk about two of them. The first thing we see is that biblical faith or true faith is ultimately believing that God is in control or trusting that God is in control. Listen to verses 25 through 29. It says this, Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. That is the disciples. They're in the boat. They're trying to row across the Sea of Galilee. The wind is against them. But he goes out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus said to them, immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Now, let me just call time out here for a second. Some of us who've grown up in church, you've gone to Sunday school, you did Bible school maybe when you were a kid or whatever, you've heard the story over and over again. And so the idea of Peter getting out to walk on the water in the middle of the night during a storm because Jesus happens to be out there, that just, you've heard it before, right? And so it loses a little bit of its um, sort of luster, 
right? It sounds like, well, of course Peter would walk out on water. You know, who wouldn't, right? Well, the, everybody wouldn't, right? That's ridiculous to step out on water. That's who, I wouldn't do it. But Peter does do it. The reason that Peter steps out onto the water and believes that Jesus can actually make him walk on the water is because of what Peter has experienced over the last, in this book of Matthew, over the last seven, eight, nine, ten chapters. It's actually interesting. I've been doing my quiet time through the book of Matthew, and what I'll do is I'll simply take a little section and read it and write it down in my journal, and then I'll sort of you know, make some notes on it and pray through it. And one of the things that comes through over and over again in the book of Matthew is that Jesus is in control, right? That he's got the power over disease, right? He, he heals people of leprosy, right? He's got power over death, right? He raises a little girl from the dead. Not only that, but he casts demons out of people. He's got power over the spiritual realm. The reason that Peter will get out of his boat and walk on the water to meet Jesus is because he has seen that Jesus is in control, right? That he's got power over life and death and wind and waves and demons and diseases. The reason that that Peter all of a sudden will take this risk is because he believes that Jesus is in control. This is one of the themes of Scripture. One of the themes of Scripture is that faith, all the way back in Genesis, all the way through Revelation, one of the themes of faith is that it's believing that God is good and that God is in control. Think, if you will, for a moment about the story of Joseph. Some of you guys are familiar with the story. But Joseph um, was one of 12 brothers, and he happened to be the 11th of the 12. And since he was one of the the youngest, and at the time he was the youngest, his father really actually kind of favored him over his brothers. That's not good. That's not healthy. It's not right, but it's what his dad, uh, Jacob, actually did. And so Jacob made him a coat that was a special coat, and, and really it was very evident to his older brothers that Jacob preferred Joseph. And so Joseph grew up probably as a little bit of a spoiled kid. And so what happened was there was this one day where the older brothers got sick and tired of Joseph, not only being the preferred younger son, but also having these dreams about, you know, ultimately being over them. And, and so one day he went out to them in the field and they decided to throw him in a pit and sell him into slavery. And so Joseph's brothers, his older brothers, who were supposed to protect him, who were supposed to take care of him, threw him in a pit. And when these slave traders came by, they sold their younger brother to these slave traders, right, and told Jacob, his dad, that he had been killed by a wild animal, right? This horrible story. And so these slave traders then take Joseph all the way to Egypt, and they sell him to a man named Potiphar. And so Joseph serves Potiphar as a slave, and he actually rises up through the ranks of Potiphar's household until one day Potiphar's crazy wife accuses him of some things, and all of a sudden Potiphar has no... uh, no, other uh, recompense but to send Joseph to jail for what his wife has accused him of. And so all of a sudden, Joseph has gone from, you know, sort of being the preferred son of this wealthy family to then being sort of higher up as a slave in the home of this wealthy Egyptian man to then being thrown into an Egyptian prison where progressively he rises up so that he is actually over all of the other prisoners inside of this prison in Egypt. He even goes so far then as to being... um, taken out of this jail in order to interpret a a dream from Pharaoh. It's this crazy story. And all the while, you can just imagine Joseph doubting that God is in control, much less doubting that God loves him or, or doubting that God is doing something that's good for him. And so what we see happening in Joseph's life is he rises up 
to being uh, really the second in command over Egypt. He's a brilliant manager, and he is able to interpret dreams. And what happens is, is that you begin to realize why God has brought him through all of these crazy twists and turns. And ultimately, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, we see Joseph speaking to his brothers who come to him because they need help in the midst of this famine. And what Joseph says is this, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. In other words, God's in control, right? Regardless of what you've done or why you've done it, I know that God has brought me to this place. He is in control. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And then Joseph says, God sent me here to save lives, right? In other words, God's in control. He's got a plan. And his plan is that he would send me here not only to save your lives, but to save other lives as well. So many of you are beginning 2016, and you feel like your lives are out of control, right? I guarantee you that's the case. I guarantee you there are people who could not sleep last night because there's some, some part of your life, and you think that it's absolutely out of control and that it's going to destroy you, right? And it might be a health issue, right? Maybe a health issue you've dealt with for a long time. It might be a health issue you just found out about. But you may just feel like the world is spinning out of control, right? It could be, for some of you, some family issue, right? It could feel like your marriage is on the rocks. Or or maybe it feels like you're never going to get married. Or maybe it feels like you have a wayward child who's sort of living this terrible and self-destructive life, and you feel like it's just out of control. For others of you, it could be your job status. Some of you are looking at your job and you're thinking, I think I'm getting ready to get let go. Or others of you maybe have been let go and you think it's just life is out of control. But what you need to remember is what Joseph reminds us of, what Jesus reminds us of, what uh, Paul reminds us of in Romans chapter 8, and it's this, is that when Jesus stepped out onto that lake into that sea in one fell swoop. He communicated to his fearful disciples, not only that he's God, but that he is in control, right? That he is in control. And so for those of us in this room this morning who are looking at any number of different things in our lives, one of the key elements of faith is remembering that God is in control and that he's good, right? And then amazingly, what Romans eight twenty eight tells us is that all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. In other words, there's actually going to be a happy ending. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for those of you who don't know, was a 20th century uh, German theologian who actually died in a Nazi uh, prisoner of war camp. And so here's a guy who seemingly didn't have a happy ending, but here's what he says. He says this, It is not that God is the spectator and sharer of our present life, howsoever important that is. In other words, God is actually watching. He is a spectator to some degree. But rather that we are the reverent listeners and participants in God's action in the sacred story, the history of the Christ on earth. Does that make sense? So here's this man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in the midst of preparing to die in a prisoner of war camp or in a Nazi concentration camp, is able to say, I believe that God is in control. And not only that, but I believe that God is writing a story that is so dramatic and so wonderful that at the very end, it's all going to be worthwhile, right? That's faith. Biblical faith is believing that God is in control. It's not only believing that God is in control, but it's also believing that God loves us, right? It's believing that he's good. That's our second point. 
So I'm going to look at verses 28 through 31 again of Matthew chapter 14, and we'll jump in. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Again, for the previous 13 chapters, there's been one primary theme in the book of Matthew, and that's that Jesus is God, and that he's in charge of all of creation, and that he's come to redeem it. And so Peter's faith, again, is based upon this and the knowledge that Jesus loves him, right? Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. So take a moment just very quickly and look at the series of events here. Jesus has revealed that he's God and that he's in control. That's been the previous 13 chapters of Matthew 13, right? And then when Peter's faith fails as he steps out on the water, what is Jesus' response? Is Jesus' response to condemn Peter? Is Jesus' response to say, come on, man? Is Jesus' response to get angry with him or to become frustrated with him? No, Jesus' response is to reach out and to save him. Why? Because he loves him, right? I mean, really, this is the action of a father for his child, right? To reach out and save him because he loves him. So uh, several years ago, uh, our little family went to South Florida, down to the Florida Keys, uh, for vacation during the summer. It's their off-season And so you can actually get really good deals on condos down there. So we went down to the Florida Keys and stayed for about 10 days. And the whole year down there, we did all sorts of great stuff. We did fishing. We did snorkeling. We, you know, you know, traveled up and down the Keys, went to Key West, had some key lime pie. It was great. One of the things we did is on one of the Keys, there's a place called Robbie's. And Robbie's is this place where you can feed tarpon that are right there sort of off the docks that, you know, stand off of this this, uh, restaurant called Robbie's. And so we had read about it online. We thought, hey, let's check that out. And so again, at the time, this is actually a picture of Robbie's, by the way. Those are tarpon in the water beneath the pelican, and they're each about six feet long, probably 120 pounds. And so we uh, pulled into the parking lot and uh, walked out to where these docks were. And as you get out to where the docks are, you look around and you just see, I mean, literally, there are these giant six-foot tarpons all over the place. They're just, the water's teeming with them. And so we took, you know, all of our kids, I think at the time, you know, Sam was probably 12 years old, May was probably nine, and Levi would have been um, seven. And so, you know, we all sort of marched out there on the dock, we're looking at all the fish, we're looking at the birds, there are people out there sort of, you know, watching all these tarpon around. As we're standing on the edge of the dock, uh, Sam was standing right here beside me, and I think the other, you know, Krista and the kiddos were over here, and Sam was just looking over the water like this at the tarpon. And as he was looking over the tarpon, all of a sudden he slipped and went bloop and fell right in the water on top of these giant tarpon. And ever since then, he's had the nickname Tarpon Rider. <laughs> and he, he loves that story. He's, and we didn't ask him if we could tell it. Anyway, so now what's interesting is that in my mind, what happened was, is that I saw Sam out of the corner of my eye begin to fall over into the water, and he you know, landed in the water on top of these giant tarpon. And in my mind's eye, within maybe half a second, I bent down, I don't even think his upper body got wet, and I literally grabbed him by the hands and I yanked him out of the water, right, to rescue him from these tarpon, which are not ever going to hurt him. They're, they're very docile creatures. Anyway, now to hear Sam tell the story, it's funny, if you hear him tell the story, he says, I fell in the water and you just stood there laughing at me, <laughs> right? So his, his version's totally different. 
everything slowed down for him, and he landed in the water. In his mind's eye, he was in the water for like 37 seconds, surrounded by giant tarpon and man-eating sharks and all sorts of stuff, while my dad just looked down at me and chuckled. So we have very different accounts of what happened there, but the point is this, is I'm pretty sure that my recollection is correct, and that within half a second, a millisecond, I bent down and yanked him out of the water so that nothing would happen to him. Why? Because I absolutely love him, right? He's my son. He's my child. I'm going to do anything I can to protect him because I love him. A bunch of buddies of mine and I were down in Buckhead. Now it's been a few years ago. And we were hanging out, having lunch, and we happened to all be pastors. And um, our waiter was this um, probably 21, 22-year-old Hispanic guy. And uh, anyway, as he, he kind of kept coming back and forth to the table, he, you could sort of hear him pause and listen to our conversation a little bit. And at one point during the middle of the lunch, he said, hey, would you guys mind if I ask you, you know, who are you? You know, what are you guys doing here? This is not normal conversation because we were talking about, you know, God and, and life and heavy things. And we explained to him that we were Christians. I don't think we said pastors necessarily. And that, then at some point in time, he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And some of the other guys said the same thing. And he said, well, do you mind if I ask you a question? And I said, sure, man. And uh, he was um, struggling with some life issues, some decisions he had made, particularly as they pertain to sexuality. And, uh, and he went on to say, you know, my dad has had a really hard time accepting these decisions that I've made. And he said, I'm just really struggling with it, and I don't know what to do. And, uh, and we had this, you know, kind of long conversation with this young Hispanic guy and the five or six of us that sat around this table. Of course, all of us as pastors were just like, hey, all we, wanted, all we want to do is really communicate to you how much God loves you, how much he desires to be in a relationship with you. And at one point in time, after talking about the frustration that he had with his dad, one of the things I said it was, look, I don't know how your dad's treated you. I don't know to what degree it's been fair or hasn't been fair. But one thing I'm pretty sure that I can tell you in all honesty is that I bet if your dad is anything like I am with my kids, you know, your dad loves you, right? He loves you so much. And he would absolutely step in front of a train or a bullet or a lion or a tiger or a bear to save you. Your dad loves you. And so it may be that he doesn't quite know how to, you know, sh- you know, sort of share that with you. Maybe he's acting in a way that you don't feel like he loves you, but I promise you, I bet that your dad loves you more than you can possibly imagine, right? And again, that's the point, is here we see Jesus acting like a good father, reaching down to grab the hand of this faithless Peter to pull him out of the water, right? And so faith is, again, believing that God's in control, but it's also believing that God loves us, right? It's believing that God's good. It's believing that God has our best interest in mind. Peter Kreeft uh, teaches at Boston College. He's a philosopher there. He's also a Catholic theologian. He has a great quote in a book that he wrote called Prayer for Beginners. And in this quote, he said, trusting God's grace means trusting God's love for us rather than our love for God. Let me read that quote one more time. Trusting God's grace means trusting God's love for us rather than our love for God. Therefore, our prayers, and I would argue our sermons, should consist mainly of rousing our awareness of God's love for us rather than trying to rouse God's awareness of our love for him, like the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. Does that make sense? In other words, part of what Kreeft is saying here is he's saying the essence of the Christian faith is not all about the strength of your love for God, but it's actually you understanding, hearing, believing, and being reminded of the strength 
of God's love for you. Does that make sense? And so biblical faith is believing God's in control and believing that he loves you, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? And so again, this is about faith. The antithesis of faith is, is probably doubt or maybe disbelief. And at various points in the Bible, again, we're told that that's the antithesis of faith, and that's true. But the question really is, what do you doubt, right? What are your doubts? Okay, some of you in this room doubt that God exists, and that's okay. God's big enough to handle that, right? Some of you in this room doubt that God is good, right? Maybe you believe God exists, but maybe you don't think he's good. Others of you are much more like me, right? Your doubts aren't that God exists, aren't that he's good, but you doubt that God loves you. Like, I'll just be open with you and tell you that's my doubt, right? I think God loves all sorts of people. I think he looks at me, he furrows his brow, and he goes, ugh. Okay, I kind of made that deal with Jesus that if Jesus died on the cross and people who believe in him would then go to heaven and not go to hell, and BP does believe, and so I'm going to accept him. I am going to forgive him. But again, what I doubt is that God actually loves me. And so for those of you who doubt that God could possibly love you, I want you to remember the story of Peter, right? The story of Peter who walked out on the water and his faith was shaken as he looked in the wind and the waves, but Jesus reached down in love and rescued him. This is the same Peter who toward the end of Jesus' life would betray Jesus three times in the courtyard in the middle of the night and not just say, I don't know who Jesus is, but he said it with curses. In other words, he denied even knowing Jesus. And again, when Jesus rose from the dead and came back, Jesus actually waited for Peter on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. He made a little fire, and on that little fire, he put some fish. And when Peter came up to him and Jesus invited him back into a relationship with him, the first thing Jesus did was say, hey, man, have some breakfast, right? And then Jesus forgave him and affirmed him. And so what I want you to know is your sin can be anywhere on that sort of continuum. It could be sin as simple as doubting, right, that God loves you or that God exists, or your sin and your brokenness could be an outright denial and rejection of Jesus. Again, that's not the point. The point is that whether you're on either end of that spectrum, the point is that God loves you, right, that he loves you, and that he is in control, and that he even has control over your sin and your forgiveness, the forgiveness that he offers you. Uh, This morning, we have a celebration called the Lord's Supper, and uh, we have tables on the right, on my right, your left, that have bread and wine. And on the other side of the room, on my left, your right, we have tables with bread and with grape juice. And what these tables of bread and wine and bread and grape juice, what they represent is exactly what we're talking about here today. It's just very simple faith that God is in control and that he loves you, right? That God is in control and that he loves you, right? And the greatest command for you to obey as you look forward into 2016 is not the command to eat less or not to get drunk or not to lust or any of those things. Those are all important probably. Ultimately, they're very important. But the greatest command for you to obey is the command that Jesus gave the disciples the last night before he went to the cross, which was take and eat. In other words, believe that I'm good, believe that I'm in control, believe that I love you, believe that I have forgiven you, right? That's the command. Martin Luther has a great saying. He said this. He said, the sin underneath all of our sins, the sin underneath all of our sins is to trust 
the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. In other words, what Luther is saying there is he's saying the ultimate sin is believing, choosing to believe Satan instead of God. And what Satan would say is, Satan would say, that sin that you have done, you've done it too many times. There's no way God can still love you, right? Right, Satan will say to you, that sin that you did, man, it was too big. There's no way God can forgive you for that. Or Satan will say, that sin that you did, you knew better, you chose to do it, consciously you did it, there's no way God can forgive you for that. He doesn't love you that much. That can't be forgiven. To which Jesus responds, my father loves you so much that he gave me, right? He sent his only son to live this perfect life, to die this death that was rightfully yours, and then to rise again, conquering both sin and death. In other words, we're faced with this decision. Do we believe God who says, I'm in control, right? I've got it taken care of, and I love you. Or do we believe the one who would cause us to doubt that God is in control and to doubt that God loves us? This morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, we have an opportunity to side with God, regardless of the strength or weakness of our faith, and to believe that he's forgiven us in his son, Jesus. Now, one more qualification. There's only one group of people that aren't invited to receive this bread and this wine. And that group of people are people who haven't come yet to that point of trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. And that's, that's okay. God can handle that. But what I would simply ask you to do if you're in that group of people is to sit back and watch the people of God as they proclaim through this meal God's love and his control, his power over their sin. I'm going to read the words of institution, then I'll pray, and I'll ask you to take the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this declaration, this proclamation, uh, this announcement of good news and bread and wine, um, that you're in control and you've got all of our sins, the sins of those who have trusted in your son Jesus, you've got all of those sins um, under control and that you have separated our sins and our sinfulness um, as far as the east is from the west. You've, you've thrown our disobedience and our arrogance um, to the bottom of the sea to be remembered no more. And so, Father, I pray that we would believe that this morning as we take this bread and wine. Father, I pray that not only would we believe that you have offered us forgiveness in this meal, but I pray that this meal today of bread and wine would be a reminder that you love us, um, that you love us, that you loved Peter despite his failings and despite his rejection of your son. Father, that you love us despite our infidelities uh, and our doubts and our outbursts of anger and our uh, rampant sinfulness, Father, that you still love us, that you still reach out your hand to us in order to save us because you're a good father who loves your wayward children. So, Father, it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray all these things today. Amen. Father, I pray that um, in this upcoming year of 2016 that we would believe that you are good, that you're in control, and that you love us. And I pray that we would cling to those simple truths, those simple promises. 
It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things today. Amen. Before I give you the benediction, let me um, tell you, make a quick announcement. Um, The next sermon series we're doing is called Truth in Art, and we're going to be taking a look at various movies and, uh, and what those have to tell us about the world that we live in, and even what biblical themes they echo. The next movie we're going to be doing next week is going to be called Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. So if you want to watch that this week before the Sunday, that would be helpful. Um, again, we're going to be doing some other movies, Inside Out, some other very current films. So just an update about that coming up. Now, if you will, receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and may he give you his peace. Amen.